Ecclesiastes chapter two, beginning in verse 12, it says. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart. As it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor? And for the striving of his heart with for which he has toiled under the sun for all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give it to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and the grasping for wind Now, Solomon, the preacher, is pondering, remember, remember the meaning and the purpose of life. He is asking and answering the gigantic question, is life really worth living? And in the opening chapter, the preacher examines the monotony of life in chapter one, verses four through eleven, the vanity of life in chapter one, verses twelve through at eighteen, the futility of wealth in chapter two, verses one through eleven. And now the preacher considers the subject of the uncertainty, I shouldn't say uncertainty, but rather the certainty of death. We might Put it this way, the uncertainty of life and the certainty of death in verses 12 through 23. And in the first chapter, it included the preacher's quest. 
In in chapter one, verse 13, we'll read it again. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under the sun that is able to be viewed by human beings. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. So he also includes his qualifications in verse 16. I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness. I've gained more wisdom than all the people or all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has great wisdom and knowledge. So the idea being I'm going to consider it and I I have the qualifications to enter into it. His initial findings. There's no real purpose. Chapter one, verses two through seven, verse 14, verse 17. Life is futile. Life is meaningless. There's nothing new. Verse 15. History is a bunch of endless cycles. There's no cure for the emptiness and darkness and wickedness. Wrongs can't be righted in this last in this lifetime. There's no lasting honor. Chapter one, verse 11. The dead are quickly forgotten. The journey has taken the preacher down the road of pleasure in chapter two, verses one and two. Alcohol, verse three, great building projects, verse four, the planting of vineyards, verse four, the creation of beautiful parks, gardens, exotic orchards, verses five and six, the accumulation of possessions, including slaves in verse seven, herds and flocks in verse seven, silver and gold, verse eight, gifted musicians, verse eight, beautiful concubines, verse eight, of universal reputation, verse nine. Total indulgence, verse 10. He's had it all. And Solomon finds it all useless and all empty in verse 11. It's a bitter pill to swallow. And Solomon's finding feed his fear in verses 17 through 23. In most cases, the accumulation and achievements in this life are left to others. Great men leave their wealth to foolish men. And, but the bitter truth is going to lead to a better truth when he comes to the end. In verses 24 and 25 and 26, be satisfied with what you have. Enjoy your work. So Solomon asks and answers, well, which is it? Wisdom or folly in verses 12 through 17. Now or later in verses 18 through 21. Daily work or evening relief in verses 22 and 23. But you know what it adds up to? He's disgusted with his life. Now, you don't have to shout all at once. And I don't need to see a show of hands. But have you ever been disgusted with your life? Disgusted. Disgusted with your life. You were so unhappy. You so want to know the truth about your life and the circumstances of your life. And so the preacher has tested life in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Comes to the conclusion that he hates his life in verses 12 through 23. And then when you finally come to verses 24 through 26, he's finally coming to a place where he feels like he can accept his life. And so 
I've entitled this particular portion, I Hate My Life. Look, look at verse 12. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what has already done. That expression, then I turned myself to consider. It simply means I decided that I was going to look at this from an entirely different perspective. That's what that means. He's going, look, I've got to look at this from a different perspective. And here the preacher decides that he's going to look at his wisdom in verses 12 through 17. He's going to look at his wealth in verses 18 through 23. In the awkward, unfailing certainty, he's going to look at his life and he's going to look at his wisdom. He's going to look at his wealth and he's going to look at his work from the perspective That one day I'm going to die. One day I'm going to stop sucking air. I'm going to exhale for the final time. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Now it's interesting Because in verse 13, he says, then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. In other words, in light of the fact that I'm going to die, does it still make sense to be wise? Does wisdom have value over folly? And remember what folly is. If wisdom is the application of knowledge and truth, folly is is a willingness to disregard knowledge and truth. So when the Bible talks about folly, that's what it means. Folly means I don't care what's good and I don't care what's right. I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do. As light excels darkness, he says. So wisdom still is valuable. Why? The wise man sees that death is coming and lives accordingly. While the fool walks in darkness is caught unprepared. The wise person sees that death is coming and lives accordingly. In other words, the wise person says this life isn't everything. There's something happening. There's something that's going to come a little bit later on. In the ancient times in Rome, when the emperor would walk through the triumph after a gigantic Victory, he had a servant whispering in his ear, remember, you're only a man. Remember, you're only a man. Remember, you're only a man. That's the difference. The wise man sees that death is coming. The fool walks in darkness. Remember what a fool is here in the Bible. A fool isn't just simply a stupid person. That's not the idea that the Bible has when it talks about foolishness. A fool in the Bible is a person who's void of any moral content inside of his or her heart. But then Solomon is being honest. The preacher's being honest. He says, but wait a minute. Whether you live a life of madness, whether you live a life of foolishness, whether you live a life of wisdom. Everybody shares the same fate. In the end, everyone is still going to die. 
And how should I think about that? He says in verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. The event he's talking about is death. So in verse 15, he says, so I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? What makes wisdom wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. Now, remember, vanity is emptiness, meaninglessness. Remember, vanity, I've already described it to you. It is when you pop a soap bubble and the scum that's left behind. That's the value that he's talking about. Empty, meaningless, no value. Empty, meaningless, no value. Solomon has devoted a great deal of time to this issue. The certainty of death. Now, some of you probably don't like to talk about death. It's not really a welcome subject. Solomon talked about it in chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 2 here, verses 14 through 17. Chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Chapter 6, verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 8. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. And then verse 12. And then chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. This is a lot of talk about death, isn't it? This is a huge preoccupation with death. Again, Woody Allen was criticized when he was... Someone was talking about some of his films and his accomplishments. And Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I I want to achieve immortality by not dying. What do you think about that? How do you think that's going to work out for him? Sorry. Do you think Woody Allen will be the first person who's exempted from death? Remember what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Remember what the Bible says? It's appointed once for a human being or a man to die, but then comes the judgment. You know what most people don't want to connect the dots with? They don't want to ask probably the most important question. Not that I'm going to die. But rather the question that precedes the question about death. And that is, why does anyone die? What does the Bible say? Why does anyone ever die for any reason? Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? He says, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Here's here's what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that death is something That has come into the circumstances of humanity because of rebellion and unbelief and a refusal to walk according to the plan and purpose of God. In other words, the reality that all human beings die means that there's something radically and dramatically and fundamentally wrong. And so Jesus comes into the world and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. There are three kinds of death in this world. When your heart stops. When your brain stops. 
And when your reality TV show has been canceled, it's over. It's like you cease to exist. I'm not sure if Woody Allen ever read Augustine. But the bishop wrote, quote, it is necessary to die, but nobody wants to. You don't want to, but you are going to willy nilly. This is a loose translation from the Greek. A hard necessity, that is, not to want something which cannot be avoided. If it could be managed, we would much rather not die, but we would like to become like the angels by some other means than death. We want to reach the kingdom of God, but we don't want to travel by the way of death. And yet there stands necessity knocking this way. Please, do you hesitate, man, to go this way when this is the way that God comes? to you the reality is that eternity is going to be ushered in in verse 16 the preacher says for there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come and how does a wise man die just like the fool Now, here's what we know. When it says, for there is no remembrance of the wise man than of the fool forever, he's making a general statement. Clearly, Solomon's writings and reputation have survived, haven't they? We can read about him in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 34. We can even read about him in Matthew chapter 6, verse 28 through 30. But most famous people get a brief biography in some few encyclopedias that people rarely read. In March 1956, David Garraway was on the cover of TV Guide. Probably nobody here remembers David Garraway. Somebody may. He was the host of the morning show. He was a celebrity. The only reason why I know he's on the cover of TV Guide is because my mom and dad kept the TV Guide on, on the week and the, and the month that I was born. And they said, okay, you're old now. You can have this. Death is no respecter of persons. Everyone dies. Tombstones and monuments may cause memory to linger, but the further down we go, life's paths, the less... We have to remember, I've, I've told you about the tombstone in Tombstone, Arizona. Pause, my friend, as you go by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. And soon, my friend, you'll follow me. And then somebody scratched at the bottom. I don't want to, to, to follow you is not my intent until I find out which way you went. Yeah, you want to know what's going on. In verse 17, it says, therefore, I hated life. I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. In other words, the preachers coming to the conclusion, wait a minute, everything that I have and everything that I am and everything that I'm done and everything that I'm doing. In the end, it's not going to matter. It's going to come to naught. 
Solomon came to the place in his life where he hated his life. Why should I get up? Why should I work? Why should I do anything? Why should I do anything with anyone? Now, you've got to understand something. When he says, I hated life, I don't think it means in the suicidal sense. I don't think that that's what he's talking about. I don't think he's coming to the place where he goes, I'm ready to kill myself. Somebody called me on my radio program today asking me the perennial question, can a Christian kill themselves and still go to heaven? And I have to constantly redirect the question and say, why would you ask that? Why would you ask that question? The real question isn't, can a Christian kill himself or herself and still go to heaven? The real question is, why would a Christian want to kill himself or herself? What's going inside of a Christian's heart that would bring them to a place of such utter despair and such utter emptiness and such utter pain that they feel that they're pressed on, under such circumstances that now's the time to end their life? I said to the caller, do you realize that eight out of every ten people at some time in their life contemplate killing themselves? And did you know that one out of every ten people will in fact attempt to kill themselves at least at some point in their life? There are a lot of people who hate their life in the suicidal sense. Where the pain and the emptiness is so profound that they can't even see past the pain and the emptiness. Now, the preacher clearly suspects that life is irrational and futile. But here's the difference. The preacher still understands that even though things are looking pretty bleak, life is still preferable to death. And that's the idea. We might even paraphrase that that phrase in verse 17. Therefore, I hated my life. We might say, therefore, I was disgusted with my life. And there may be varying degrees of disgust. You wake up and you go, why am I doing this? Why am I at this job? Why am I doing this? Why have I formed this friendship or relationship? Why do I collect this? Why do I care about this? Why do I have this? Why do I want this? The French philosopher Voltaire wrote, I hate my life. But I'm afraid to die. He's a philosophical humanist. I hate my life, but I'm afraid to die. Why was Voltaire afraid to die? Because for Voltaire and his world and his way of thinking, death meant extinction of existence. Is that what happens when you die? When the lights go off and the mind stops working? Is that, is that what happens? You see, for the Christian, suicide is never an option, no matter how difficult the circumstances might be. 
Some people might say, well, what about the Bible? Well, we know of good and godly men who cried out to God and they felt like they wanted to die. Remember in Job chapter 3, verse 21, in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, he wants to die. He makes the statement, it would have been better that I had never been conceived, that I had never been born. Finally, he gets his wife to agree with me and she says, you're right, curse God and die. Moses wanted to die in Numbers chapter 11, verse 15. Elijah wanted to die in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. He had slain the the prophets of Baal. He had been a participant in incredible miracles. But when he discovered that Jezebel wanted to kill him, he just simply said, I would rather be dead Jonah, when he was instructed to go to Nineveh in order to preach to the to the people of Nineveh to turn from their sin and repent of their sin and embrace the reality that God was going to judge them unless they repented of their sin. Jonah decided he would rather die. Than obey God, he gets in a boat. Heads in the opposite direction and make no mistake about it. When he is in the boat and and the wind is tossing and the waves are coming and they're getting ready to die. The the people on the boat ask him, they say, who are you? I'm Jonah. Tell, Tell us exactly what it is that you do. I'm a Hebrew prophet. And tell us again what's going on. I'm running from God. Okay. So what should we do? Look, toss me overboard and all of your problems will be solved. Do you understand? When you're tossed overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean, here's what's going to happen. Every time you are going to drown and you are going to die. Now, I want you to think this through. Jonah would rather die than obey the Lord. And they do throw him overboard. And God prepares a great fish, the Bible says, and swallows him and leads him in the direction that he was supposed to be going. And you know the story how he's barfed up on the shore. Now, you know what Job and Moses and Elijah and Jonah, even though all of them wanted to die, you know what all of them had in common? They all changed their mind. Why is that important for you? Because you might be experiencing difficult circumstances, painful circumstances, terrible circumstances, pressing circumstances where the only logical secession to your pain seems to be self-destruction. But each one of these people changed their mind. You see, we as Christians are to love life. To value life. 
to embrace life. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 34, verse 12, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday as we were going through first Peter, chapter three in Psalm 34, 12. It says, who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Peter quotes that exact passage in first Peter, chapter three, verse 10, where he says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Do you want the most out of life for the glory of God? Do you want to get the most enjoyment out of life? Warren Wiersbe writes, we may not enjoy everything in life or be able to explain everything about life. But that's not important. We live by promises, not by explanations. And we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Solomon, the preacher, is preaching and he's saying, my job and my work and my willingness to say what's right and do what's right and act what's right doesn't matter. And Paul says it does matter. It does matter. You've probably been in circumstances where you thought, look, I did what was right. I prayed. I told the truth instead of lie. I did this. I did that. I did exactly what was right. And all Gehenna broke loose. Yeah, it might happen. It might happen that way. In verse 18, look, look what he says. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Do you understand what he's saying? Not only did I hate my life, but I hated my work. Why? Because I came to the realization that none of it is going to go with me. I have to leave it to the man who will come after me. Now, the preacher switches from wisdom to wealth to work, and he begins to despise the fact that he has to leave significant wealth to somebody else. You probably know that this last year, was it this last year, Scott? I think that the second richest man in the world, Warren Buffett, left the majority of his wealth to the world's richest man, Gates. So why would the second richest man in the world leave the vast majority of his fortune to the richest man in the world? Because the first richest man and the second richest man understand something, that both of them are going to die. And somebody is going to be in charge of that wealth. And both of them realize that their children probably shouldn't be that person who's in charge of the wealth. Now, think about it. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you think that Solomon was born wealthy? All of you should think so. David is his father. He inherits all of his wealth from his father. He he is a talk about being born with a silver spoon. He and he inherited his father's vast estate and the throne. But the preacher isn't simply now the preacher. He's reflecting an axiom, a truism. He's not just simply saying, I hated all my labor because I've toiled under the sun because I have to leave it to the man who's coming after me. This isn't just the bitter outcry of a king who's going to leave his last 
lasting legacy to his son. By the way, his son is Rehoboam. And by the way, his son is going to inherit the wealth. And by the way, in a matter of moments, the kingdom is going to be split. And the vast majority of his wealth is going to start to be flushed down the toilet. And so he's reflecting. Not only is he reflecting on his circumstance, but you know what else he's doing? He's beginning to enter into the reflection of what it means to be a human being. In other words, what he is basically suggesting is all human beings should come to that place in their life where they realize that they can't take it with them. And he gives three reasons why he's disgusted with his circumstances. The three reasons are first, the first reason, you can't keep what you've earned. The day will come when everything that you have will go to someone else. And you remember the parable in Luke's gospel of the rich fool. Remember in Luke chapter 12, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to just turn there just for a second. To Luke chapter 12. And you all know the familiar story of Jesus where this guy basically comes to Jesus and um, he basically says in verse 13, then one of the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Here's what he's basically saying. Our dad is dead. My brother's cheating us out of the inheritance. Make him give me what belongs to me. In other words, here's here's what what he's doing. He's basically saying, Jesus, I want you to help me and I want you to feed my need for greed. And here's what Jesus says. Man. Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? The right answer? God the Father made Jesus the Son to be the real judge. But this guy doesn't know that. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Solomon, if he could hear the words of his future famous relative, would say, Amen. You see, the rich... Man was way more concerned about getting money and keeping money than hearing the word of God. This is part of the point. I want money and I want to keep the money. Okay, here's what I want, Lord. I want the money and I want to keep the money and I want you to help me keep the money. But you remember how the rest of the story goes? He spoke a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, hmm, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? I've got so much junk I have to buy stuff to put my junk in. So he said, I will do this. I'll build, I'll pull down my barns and build even bigger barns. And then I'll store all my crops and my stuff. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you've many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Then God said to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In the parable, did money solve all of his problems? Did money fill the emptiness inside of his heart? It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's just simply a sin to make wealth your God. 
Wealth can be a window. Wealth can be a window where you see God's plan and you see God's purpose, or it can be a mirror where the only thing that you see is yourself. It can make us generous. Or it can make us selfish. But it's not the wealth that makes us generous or selfish. It's what's inside of us already that makes us selfish or generous. You've heard the Jewish proverb that says, there are no pockets in shrouds. Or the way we say it, I've never seen a hearse hauling a U-Haul trailer. But one day I want to get a hearse and I want to rent a U-Haul trailer. And I actually want to attach it just for fun, just to say I've seen it. But can you imagine if you actually saw a hearse hauling a U-Haul trailer, how funny that would be knowing that all of the stuff that's inside of it really isn't going anywhere. And in verse 19, it says, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Do you understand? That's the second reason. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I have toiled, in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is is vanity. The preacher's panicking. Wealth can't be kept. And now he's saying, I can't keep it. And I can't. Protect it. Now, by the way, there are very wealthy people who are also very wise, who are trying to make extraordinary provisions in order to make sure that the wealth is left behind for someone who's not going to waste it. But Solomon says, well, what if the guy's a fool? What if I leave my estate to a person who tears down Everything that I've sought to build up. It doesn't make much sense. Again, he doesn't know it at the time, but his son Rehoboam will do exactly that. The nation of Israel will become deeply, deeply divided. By the way, it will become permanently divided. And in verse 20, it says, therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor which I had toiled under the sun. You know, a single parent wrote a note. Here's what she wrote. I work full time. So juggling work and home and my social life has placed me on a treadmill that has left me unfulfilled. It has left me drained. It has left me powerless. I could not see how else to live my life. U.S. News and World Report. Today, work dominates America.